you end up talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the universe. And extract that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist. Think of objects, not as single things, but as being made up of many constituents. Bill Nye made me hate science. Well, you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. Hey, everybody. You are on Natural Reaction here on Zed Digital. We're here for another week. We're talking about science. We're talking about all of the cool things that have happened this week. But I'm not sure what everyone's talking about. So I'm going to be talking about um, Amelia Earhart because they found her bones slash maybe have her bones, but they don't really. And, you know, that's always fun. We've spoken about Amelia Earhart before, haven't we? Yes. And they've, found, they've done a new research analysis on her. So I wanted to bring her back up again for, uh, for old time's sake. Sweet. Pretty sure it was aliens. Just, it's always aliens. Just, run, just floating that out there. Izzy, what are you talking about today? <laughs> uh, I'm talking about, I think this is a little interesting academic look at the effectiveness of banning forums on, on online. A little academic look. Yeah. No, just, a, just a small one? Well, I mean, no, it's actually quite in depth. But it's just, these communities aren't going anywhere. The internet's kind of a big thing now. That's not going it's anywhere true. anytime soon. So it's just interesting that we're starting to like seriously study uh, these communities now. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Very cool. Um, Nadia, what are you talking about? I was going to chat about the snubbed scientist today of Jocelyn Balbunel. That was a very badly put together grammatical sentence. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, I'm going to talk about Jocelyn Balbunel. And then I thought I'd talk about some female hunting spiders and their mate preferences. I love this. I can't wait for this story. It's going to be great. Um, now, we also have a guest in the studio, Tara. Tara Robinson. I should say your full name. I shouldn't just say Tara on air. <laughs> um, and you, so communications officer for the Center of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems. Well done. Yeah. A PhD student <laughs> at CPAS, which is the Center for Public Awareness. Awareness of Science. Yeah. And the president of the Australian Science Communicators Southeast Queensland branch. Ooh. Yes. In my spare time. Yeah. <laughs> Those What's are a spare lot time? of titles. <laughs> yeah. That is a lot of titles, yeah. Is there any, any other titles that we should know about? Are you a, a baronet? Or anything? Uh, sadly, no. Uh-huh. I mean, my cousin bought a bit of land in Scotland recently, so he's now Lord David. He's very Ooh, proud nice. of that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. So you're the cousin to a lord. That's right. Does that yeah. make you anything? I don't, I don't know how these work. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It's fine. <laughs> yes, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking to you about hype in science. That's right. So and can you tell me a bit about what that entails? Uh, so I like to call it um, how we make science sexy. So uh, you work at science a lot as yeah. well. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> no, no one knows. I have to cut that out in post. <laughs> so you're probably familiar with uh, short kind of catchy titles. Yeah, everyone sees this, you know, kind of like the current affair version of like science reporting. See, I make science sexy just by me saying it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the voice gets a little yeah. bit deeper. I was, I was going to say though, like... The current affairs of science reporting is a really good way of like <laughs> putting out science alert. Like, no, no offense to science alert. Like, it's great, but yeah, current affairs of science reporting. You need like attention grabbing titles just to get people to read it. And unfortunately, that's just become a massive symptom of the internet and clickbait and how journalism and reporting is nowadays. Oh, things need to be sexy to get any form of interest. You and could it's, absolutely. Yeah. I could talk yeah. about Facebook and the algorithm change all day, but we won't. <laughs> We we've got other things. We've got other things. <laughs> to I would talk be super about. interested in that. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll go. We'll work it out afterwards. Um, but yeah, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital, and Nadia, you've got our snubbed scientist of the week. Yes. So snubbed scientists, where we talk about sexism in science, 
And today we're going to be talking about Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who is an Irish astrophysicist and is credited with, quote, one of the most significant scientific achievements of the 20th century. And Jocelyn discovered pulsars when she was a postgraduate student. And this discovery was recognized by the Nobel Prize in Physics, which was awarded to her thesis supervisors. And Jocelyn was excluded from the award despite having been the first to observe and precisely analyze the pulsars. I knew this story was going to make me angry. These stories <laughs> always make you angry. How dare you? It's so true. Every time. But anyway, so let's talk about Jocelyn. So Jocelyn Bell was born in Northern Ireland in 1943. Her parents were educated Quakers who encouraged an interest in science with books and trips to a nearby observatory. Jocelyn's father was actually an architect who helped design the Armagh Planetarium, which also helped to obviously love her foster, uh, foster her love of astronomy. Now, during her primary school years, Jocelyn was not allowed to study science. At the time, girls were excluded from learning science and their curriculum instead consisted of cooking and cross-stitching. That is, until her parents and others protested against the school's policy. That's insane, isn't it? Oh, just, you just need to learn how to cross-stitch. <laughs> that's, that's the real-life skill you need. Did you do home ec in school? I actually didn't. We didn't have home ec. We had um, DT, which was like design and technology, and we had woodshop. And that was, everyone did that. Wait, so. Did you not have like textiles or anything like that as well? Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm. I always wanted to do woodshop, but they took it out the curriculum at my school when I was going into high school. Robbed. That's I terrible. Know. I didn't do home ec though, just because I already knew how to cook. <laughs> yeah, I, I also knew how to, actually, I don't think I really knew it until after I graduated. It might have been a helpful skill, to be honest. I but, just um, learned from watching my parents. I think that's a benefit of Mediterranean heritage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so even though, uh, back to Jocelyn, even though she had an appetite for learning, she did have difficulty in school and failed an exam which was intended to measure her readiness for higher education. Undeterred, her parents sent her to England to study at a Quaker boarding school where she was inspired by a physics teacher and soon distinguished herself in her science classes. Having proven her aptitude for higher learning, Jocelyn went to, on to attend the University of Glasgow. And in 1965, at the age of 22, she graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in physics. Jocelyn then began her postgraduate studies in radio astronomy at the University of Cambridge, where she also worked as a research assistant under the supervision of Anthony Hewish and Martin Ryle. Over the next two years, Jocelyn helped in the construction of a massive four-acre radio telescope which was designed to study quasars, which had actually recently been discovered. And for those of you at home and are interested, a quasar is a massive and extremely remote celestial object that emits um, large amounts of energy. Uh, typically, have a, they look like stars, and they may contain massive black, black holes in the middle. Mm, that's cool. So... When this radio telescope was functional, it was Jocelyn's responsibility for operating and analyzing the data it produced. She spent endless hours poring over charts and literally hundreds of meters of printouts. In 1967, she detected a little bit of scruff on a chart recorder. Recorder, I can't speak today. Is that the kind of like, is that the kind of, so if everyone's seen like the wow symbol, like the wow signal where it's like, you know, you see those like the small lines like kind of down a page, but then like it'll be mostly zeros, it'll be mostly blank, and then there'll be like a bunch of interesting things going on. And I, I that I'm imagining that's what they kind of look like. It'd be like random numbers that you have to go through, and then like if there's any spikes, you'd see it on the paper. I'm not sure, but I imagine it's something similar to that. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, that would be crazy. The idea of going through that kind of data. You think like the you still have the background readout like 
the general background of the universe noise. Yeah. And with spikes of signal, what you call signal, with things that aren't noise, things yeah, that don't yeah. actually have data. Yeah. I imagine it might be something like that, especially if you're pointing at something like a quasar. I'm not massive, I'm not, I'm not really up to date on my astrophysics, but from memory, quasars have that, because they're high energy, they have that output, and they also would spin. So it's like a neutron star. You can point a radio telescope at a neutron star, and because it spins, it has this huge... It, at the poles, as a spike of energy. You'd have background noise, oh, background okay. noise, spike, background noise, background noise, spike, background That's noise. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. So I, I have found, unfortunately for the listeners at home, it is a picture, um, but I will show <laughs> you people in the audience what a printout actually looks like. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's chaos. just uh, <laughs> Yeah, so just lots of numbers. Looks like ones and just dashes everywhere. Just yeah, yeah, that looks like it would take ages to go through. And Jocelyn would go through literally hundreds of meters of the stuff and sometimes 96 feet in a single night of these printouts yeah she deserves a Nobel prize i'm just putting <laughs> it out there um so she after she noticed these anomalies she told her supervisors about them and after the next couple of months the team systematically eliminated all possible sources of these radio pulses and they affectionately labeled these as LGM1 or little green men which was a reference to their possible alien origins and after monitoring these pulses using more sensitive equipment the team discovered several more regular patterns of radio waves and determined that they were in fact emerging from neutron stars which are fast-spinning, collapsed stars that are too small to form these little, these big black holes that quasars would form. And these findings were then published in, 19, in the 1968 issue of Nature. And this caused an immediate sensation. The press were intrigued as much by the novelty of a woman scientist <laughs> as they were by the astronomical significance of the discovery of these pulsating radio stars. I mean... It did, probably didn't go down like this, but in my head, it's just like, a woman scientist? How novel. <laughs> I actually saw a, a little snip on, on the internet the other day, and it was a clip from Johnny Bravo, um, the oh, old yeah. cartoon show. And basically, um, it was a woman scientist on TV, and Johnny Bravo says, a woman scientist? Have we rarely progressed that far? <laughs> wow. wow, Johnny Bravo is like, like... I mean, look, Johnny Bravo didn't make like any too many niche jokes, is all I'm trying to say. Like, There wasn't a lot of... Maybe there was, and you just missed it. Oh, yeah, them. that's true. I didn't actually watch a lot of Johnny Bravo. Yeah. I did, but the point of the show was, like, he was a stupid misogynist. <laughs> yeah. Like, he was a really stupid misogynistic guy. Mm. Like, that's kind of Johnny Bravo in a nutshell. True that. But, yeah, so the press kind of went mad, and um, they picked up the story and showered Jocelyn with attention. And, interestingly, this was also the same year she earned her PhD. She would have been so young. Mm, so she would have been 26. Mm. Yep. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? <laughs> um, You're doing your PhD. Like, you, you like could the, the find thing, right? the equivalent <laughs> of, you know... I'm not fighting pulses. I do want to say, you don't need to get a Nobel Prize in order to feel valuable in yourself. It's okay. Like, you don't... Don't put that on yourself. Only, like, five people <laughs> in every whatever hundred thousand, thousand can get a Nobel Prize. Don't hate yourself because you don't have a Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Very true. Um, well, in 1974, Anthony Hewish and Martin Ryle, Jocelyn's supervisors, received the Nobel Prize in, in Physics for the discovery of pulsars. The paper which announced the discovery had five authors. Hewish was listed as first and Jocelyn was second. 
and the fact that Jocelyn was not included as a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize has been a really controversial issue ever since. Did they explain it at the time? Did the Nobel Prize guys explain why they didn't give her the thing? Was it like, well, I mean, she only just found it. Like, that seems a bit silly to me. Like, Well, I haven't read anything about the actual reasoning from the Nobel Prize committee, but Jocelyn does kind of, um, she talks about her perspective on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, many people in the scientific community raised their objections, believing that Jocelyn had been unfairly snubbed. She did, after all, help to build the whole radio telescope and the one who was initially noticing this anomaly. She spent hours analyzing the data. Um, but Jocelyn actually rejected the notion that she had been snubbed. She felt that the prize had been properly awarded given her status as a graduate student. And she did, however, acknowledge that gender discrimination may have been a contributing factor. So apparently she had to be really persistent to her supervisors when reporting this anomaly. They thought um, that this was just due to man-made interference. And she recalls that she was excluded from many meetings with her supervisors, but it doesn't seem this, like unfair well not unfair um it doesn't seem very unusual like supervisors have meetings all the time with our graduate students it is their job to criticize the data you're producing and something that's really anomalous they need to be sure and jocelyn actually commented on this issue in 1997 stating that disputes between supervisor and student are always difficult probably impossible to resolve it is the supervisor who has the final responsibility for the success or the failure of the project. We have cases where a supervisor blames his students for a failure, but we know it is largely due to the fault of the supervisor. It seems only fair to me that he should benefit from the successes too. I believe it would demean Nobel Prizes if they were awarded to research students, except in very exceptional cases, and I do not believe that this is one of them. See, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? That even she's like, nah, it wasn't an exceptional case. And you go, was it though? Like, mm. you sure? I don't know. Especially if she had to go and actually like, she was like, no, no, this is definitely a thing. I'm pretty sure this is a thing. Like, uh, if, maybe if she just handed the data over and gone, okay, I think this is kind of cool. But like, I don't know. That makes me, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard. I, I mean, when you publish papers as a research student, there's always going to be a fight for first author and last author, especially. Last author is sometimes more important than first author. It is actually more important than it first author these days. Yeah. In physics, that's the yeah. communicating scientist. That's the main scientist. That's the, the person on the press release. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that's that's everyone, like the last author is the one who everyone talks about. It's not the yeah. first author anymore. Mm-hmm. They own the lab a lot of the time. Mm. It's generally the main supervisor. So, I mean, Nobel Prize or not, Jocelyn's depth of knowledge regarding radio astronomy and everything else has earned her a lifetime of respect in the scientific community and especially in esteemed career in academia. After she received her PhD, she taught and studied gamma ray astronomy at the University of Southampton. She then spent eight years as a professor at the University College London where she focused on X-ray astronomy. She then worked as a professor of physics while studying neutrons and binary stars and also conducted research in infrared astronomy at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. She was also the Dean of Science at the University of Bath from 2001 to 2004 and has been a visiting professor at a number of esteemed institutions such as Princeton and Oxford. 
So she made her own way, despite the lack of Nobel Prize. Yeah, I mean, she's received countless awards and honours, including Commander and Dame of the Order of the British Empire. I want to be a Commander and Dame. That's so cool. (laughs) She also got an Oppenheimer Prize and a Herschel Medal from the Royal Astronomical Society, which she served as president from 2002 to 2004. She was president of the Institute of Physics from 2008 to 2010, and she has served as a president of the Royal Society of Edinburgh since 2014. And she has a ridiculous amount of honorary degrees from a variety of universities. Everyone's just handing them out. They just want to give her honorary degrees. Mm. So, I mean, I do think it's unfair that she wasn't listed as a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize. She did do a lot of work, and I believe that just everything that she's done does credit her at least some of the prize share. Yeah. Uh, but she seems to be okay with it and has made an amazing life from everything that she's done. Yeah, I guess it kind of, it it harks back to the idea that a Nobel Prize only awarding a small group of people is kind of problematic in itself, right? Like, and we've talked about this before on the show that that the um, gravitational waves was a big one where, you know, like hundreds of people were listed on that paper and two of them got Nobel Prizes. Is that fair? I mean, there's there's hundreds of people that, that contributed to the work to find out the gravitational waves, but you can't put hundreds of people on a Nobel Prize. Should you put papers? Should, should... Like the paper be the thing that gets the Nobel Prize rather than the people? I don't know. I don't know what the solution is here, but that's an interesting idea, right there. Actually, like a paper receiving the prize. Yeah, instead of and so person. everyone who's on that paper then ends up winning the Nobel Prize. But would that mean that there'd always be a hundred people on a paper? Because if it's a really cool paper, you'd want to be the in it for the Nobel Prize. I don't know. Watson and Crick probably still would have end up. Sorry, Watson and Crick, and I can't remember the the snub scientist on that one. Rosalind oh. Franklin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just the snub We We haven't spoken about her yet, but we probably will. We'll get there. Uh, interestingly about Rosalind Franklin, like one thing I will bring up, when the Nobel Prize was awarded, she'd already passed, and they don't award Nobel Prizes posthumously. Uh. Yeah, and actually her PhD student was the one that found that. Found that it wasn't actually her who discovered it. So it was in it was in her lab. But in the same token, like if we're going to be giving the prize to this particular scientist, should we not be giving it to the post? Yeah, the postdoc in her lab. So your natural reaction here on Zed Digital, and we have a very special guest in the studio, Tara Robinson. Thank you so much for coming in. (laughs) (laughs) We actually should talk about oysters one week. They're fascinating. But onto the topic at hand. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit again? Um, I mean, obviously you have so many different hats that you do in so many different areas, but um, I wanted to start with your... Actually, you know what? How do you have so much time? That's my first question. <laughs> yeah, is there do, an hour in the day that we don't know about? Do you have a time turner? And I just, I, I would like to borrow it if you God, do. God, I'm so desperate for a time turner. <laughs> I don't trust Jacinta with a time turner. <laughs> why, why not? How dare you? Because like... I mean, not even Hermione Granger got that. Like, why were they giving time travel to children? That's a terrible idea. It was a bad move. Oh, come on. It was awesome. But they don't even teach these kids history. What do they know? Yeah, but this was Hermione. She's yeah, she already knew all history. Isn't, isn't yeah. there history? Yeah, she knew everything. I didn't, there, there's like, I didn't like see history a lot of, of Hogwarts. I didn't see like a lot of like World War II, what went down in the, Hogwarts. The book was actually called Hogwarts, A History. That's <laughs> yeah. right. I think That's we're right. getting and off she'd read it already. Right? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And she still messed it up. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, how do you manage to do all the stuff that you do? Uh, Well, sleep is optional some weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Of Uh, course. But yeah, it's just like a lot of multitasking and uh, it's kind of nice because my my PhD is like the theoretical side of my practical work 
and I say it to my scientists all the time and then they get that face like, oh, Tara's made a bad dad joke. But it's like, my work is my lab. <laughs> yeah, see? Look see, at Izzy. That. If you it's could that. see Izzy's face in the studio right now, it's perfect. <laughs> but if I say it at a social science conference, they go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know how to press the right button. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can you tell me, so you're, what you do is you look at hype in science and, and one of the examples that you had was NASA, which I'm going to be talking about so much later because I love NASA. They're the he best. I love NASA. They're the, they're the best like for PR too. Like every time I post something, I'm like, damn, I'm so impressed. Like, <laughs> NASA, um, NASA for me is an interesting one because like no matter what they do, I'll kind of always support them just because if I don't have something approaching Starfleet by the time they put me in the ground, I'm just going to be... I can't hack that. (laughs) Really? That's a while away, man. I know, but it's a utopia, and I want to know they're at least heading there. Um, So what would you say, Tara, that your favourite example of hype in science is? And that it can be for good or evil. Oh, for good or evil. Yeah, yeah. So many options. See, that's what I thought. Maybe (laughs) maybe an evil one would be better because I feel like it'll be fun. Or terrible. <laughs> so when we say evil, do we mean like, oh, ethical choices? Yeah. Or any kind of, I don't know, anything that's kind of a bit like, did you really need to do that? You know, like. But like, when, uh, we, when we said hyped, like, because are we talking about maybe vaccines cause autism, the Lan- Lancet paper, does that count as evil hype? Isn't it more like clickbait science? Mm. Do you know what? It can be pretty well anything, which is like the hard bit when I talk to my supervisor. She's like, pick something. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't want to. Is it like, because hype is really about how people respond to the thing. Mm. So it's not so much a form as it is a function. That's right. That's right. It's a really like, it's a functional kind of tool that you can use. And there's like a sliding scale where you could even say like a conference presentation is hype in some sense, because you're trying to win people over to your research, right? And then you have these more extreme circumstances with vaccines causing autism. Mm. And, um, you know, that was very much like a campaign, if you want to look at it from a PR perspective. Well, yeah, that... That Lancet paper, for instance, that is actually another fascinating thing with so many interesting talking point things to talk about. It, it's a truly terrible paper. Like, it's still it's a campaign yeah. as well. It's awful. It's not like yeah. it stopped. Like you can, uh, there's a lot of um, anti-vaccinators who go to like really poor communities in America, especially um, immigrant populations, and a lot of immigrant populations now don't have that high vaccine rates because they're more they can be easily persuaded, which is so sad. But God, that sounds like missionaries, hmm. like vaccine mi- mission, anti-vaccine <laughs> it's what, it's missionaries. It's basically what it is, though, because they think that they're helping, but they're obviously not. Like, oh wow! So, do you have a another example of like what's your favorite hype moment thing? Well, what I love talking about is NASA and kind of like the Jenny Mars stuff that they do. Um, one of the things that they did was release this whole range of like travel posters. So, you know, like, come to Mars, work as a farmer. Come to Mars, work in mining. Grow potatoes. When, when was it? Is this recently? Is this in the cold? This is yeah. kind of around the Martian. Uh-huh. So when the Martian came out, they did a whole bunch of other stuff to kind of make it like, yeah, we're absolutely going to get there and it'll be like 2030. You can bet on it. Maybe. 2040, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get there, guys. It's the, gonna the, the Martian, the movie, just for everyone playing at home, just in case you haven't seen or it. The book. Or the book is excellent. Oh, yeah, but this, was this, but this campaign but was yeah, around yeah. the movie. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I've also read the book. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Would recommend if anyone wants to read it. Oh, look at these Martian hipsters over here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, do you think that hype in science is good or bad for science? I 
am part of the kind of evil contingent, I suppose. Like I recently went to a conference where the first two keynote speakers talked about hype and how it was really awful. And then I got up and I said, well, actually, I disagree. So I put like a big Death Star on my on my initial <laughs> presentation. <laughs> so, hey, guys. And then uh, the closing speaker, chief science advisor for New Zealand, also said hype is terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, no. So you were like the black sheep of the conference. Always. But, you know, it's really entertaining. You get the best pick up on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that you have to look at it in terms of like serving a function. So like any tool, it can be used for good or evil, and that's going to depend on the people wielding it rather than the tactics themselves. I mean, NASA has essentially been doing PR for like 50 plus years. They're very, very good at it. It works sometimes. Other times it's terrible. Like, I mean, you could even make the argument there was a stretch of time in the 70s and 80s when NASA was PR for the American government. Absolutely. Of course they were. Yeah. At Cold War. And then they kind of led into, oh, what was the other one? It was Utopia. It was yeah. actually Star Trek. They were at conventions. and. <laughs> Damn. So Tara, um, nowadays when it comes to science in the public eye, it seems like there's two polarized camps these days where you have people who are really excited about it, promoting it. Um, over-emphasizing some of the findings, which has always been a thing, but it seems to be really prominent now on the internet. And then you have those who are actually like really completely against science, where you see the whole anti-vaxxer movements, anti-GMOs, where it's it's two really polarizing sides of the spectrum mm -hmm. going on in the public eye. Um, I guess hype is the main thing surrounding that. What are your, I guess, thoughts or ideas on how we kind of come to a middle point or... I think that there are always going to be opposing camps. Uh, that's that's just the way we work as people. Um, I don't know about middle ground, really. Uh, I think that a lot of people get burnt by hype. And that's where you kind of have to work this uh, kind of moderate middle ground sometimes where you go, okay, this is really exciting, but... You know, when it comes down to it, it might not happen for 30 years. Sorry mm. about that. Yeah, this that is a middle... my study. It's <laughs> always a my study. Yeah, but that so. middle ground is never really shared these mm. days. It's always either, you know, oh, this is going to cure cancer or, you know, no, this is going to destroy the world. Yes. There's, there's never any, like, reasonable, like, well, this is a study. It shows some promising effects. It is in this organism or it's in a dish. We want to investigate it further. That's seems really boring to do you mean public. in like do you mean in like the public commu science communication or do you mean like literally in the papers science communication how they talk about the papers because there's literally hundreds of papers coming out on those types of things like that's what's happening but when it comes to communicating it it's it's always the it's obviously um embellished a lot more i do also want to point out here that i don't want to we i don't want to draw any false equivalencies people who are completely anti-science and are just like you know don't trust it that is not the same as people who blow it out of proportion because uh, one of those things is yeah like does things like tr go to immigrant communities and pr try and prevent them from vaccinating and that can cause serious serious problems the other ones get carried away and run off with a study that's in mice and think that we've got cancer cured i mean it's still a problem but i just don't think it's just on the same scale as groups that do things like stop people from vaccinating yeah, and I think um, 
you see kind of like a, a selection effect, right? So it's hard to keep nuance when you're coming from a paper to a press release to media coverage to discussion on social media. I mean, maybe that's a space where scientists can choose to be more active if they want to and say, hey, I'm over here. That was my paper. Come and ask me questions. And I'm quite happy to you know, fix anything that didn't sound quite right as it made its journey through all of these different kind of channels. Because, you know, social media, I mean, it's 28 to 280 characters now, but 140 characters was tough. <laughs> so you ended up with some pretty short headlines mm. like study cancer. Hashtag <laughs> science. All right, go here for the rest. No one does. Follow no. me. <laughs> yeah, um, you wish they did, because I don't. Good question for you. Uh, do you think hype is becoming a bigger, more important thing over time, or is it sort of reducing over time? It's, is its effect and its power being reduced over time? I think people are becoming more, I suppose, cynical about it, which I think is fair enough. I mean, we're getting, you know, post-truth, post whatever uh people want to know more these days and they have uh, more opportunity to find additional information which i think is an excellent thing like uh, it's more of a kind of democratic knowledge making process if people can then go and look for sources and ask questions so is part of this fretting over the broader public discourse and its lack of nuance around science uh maybe blown a bit out of proportion if as people get more and more exposed to science, as the media proliferates, as because we have more avenues like the internet and this show, so many, so many. too many, even. <laughs> uh, is this something that you think will like will not go away, but will reduce itself over time to a more manageable level? I suppose it will disperse. Mm. So you might see pockets of hype, but um, in terms of like the overall effect, like different communities will be aware of it to different extents. Uh, my parents probably don't see the same type of news in their Facebook feed as I do. So they're going to see different types of maybe science that's applicable to them hyped. It, it's really going to depend. And because we have our individualized channels, right, that's that's very different. But we're not talking about Facebook algorithms today, so <laughs> we're not going to get into that. That, <laughs> that needs more than a two-hour show. <laughs> Targeted it, hype. Except to say, like, please don't just trust anything that you see in your Facebook without like looking into it further click on the link at least <laughs> yeah and Just facebook isn't facebook isn't a news source it's trying really hard not to be a news source so don't get your news from facebook go <laughs> go, go to whatever site you like whether that's abc whether that's whatever just don't like expect that everything that you're getting Facebook's top news because you're not you just uh, anyway, we're not moving space, about this like, no. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it um so <laughs> you work on quantum systems well you work on talking about quantum systems that's right right do not do the research yeah obviously because <laughs> that stuff is complicated um is it hard to create hype or just generally like try and explain it to people when you're talking about such a complicated topic like I'm sure that even between one quantum physicist to another hmm it'd be hard for them to go, okay, here's what I'm working on, here's what they're working on. There's so much dis difference between the different types of science within quantum physics. I was amazed when I first started and, you know, I had a research group over here in Sydney who was doing different things to people on Perth and they were like, no shared language here. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like quantum is such a happy word though nowadays. It's so topical and Extremely. timely at the moment. Yeah, Everyone loves quantum somethings. That's right. Whether or not they know what a quantum state is. Yes, that, that's different. 
but you know we had the Australian of the Year, which was kind of amazing. She's a woman. She's in science. She does all these other things, and oh, she does quantum computing. <laughs> Hell yeah! A lot of buzzwords. Mm. So, so what do you like? You, you're the one working on the research. What do you think are some of like the big takeaway points from your work in the field so far? I think that it's much more than just quantum computing. So um, that's what you read about because I think that that's probably the thing that makes the most sense. It's really relatable. We all know what a computer is. Hey, a faster computer? Fantastic. <laughs> Qubit. It's on and off at the same time, but it's basically like a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know about. That was Qubits. excellent. Yeah. I liked that. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, but, you know, we have sensing. So, uh, working in roads sometimes they might dig down and they'll hit a sewer pipe instead of something else that they were looking for and it costs a lot of money and with the technology enabled by quantum research we can make those senses much much better and that in itself is kind of fascinating for road work companies <laughs> uh, but it's probably not what you're going to read about you know in the career mail probably not the career mail <laughs> no, any no. of any of those yeah yeah no there's not there's not much science reporting in newspapers in general i would say no not really unless it's um something like cancer related yeah. mm. that that's the the hypey buzzword for all biology these days if it's related to cancer you may see it in a in a newspaper oh there's some cute um anything to do with animals as well gets oh, a yeah. lot of hype i think it's one of those things where you need to have a reference point that gives you a personal stake to Absolutely. really start to care about the hype thing. You need a story, and yeah. it's always about a story. Uh, and when you're talking about something that's so abstract for so many people, it's hard to relate. And that's that's where hype can kind of help you sometimes. It's, it's, sorry, I feel like I'm monopolizing the conversation here, but I've got another question I really want to ask, which is, because like, we're talking about the reference points and things that people understand and how that creates like sort of a value and engagement and hype. Uh, what role do you think like fiction, like science fiction and stuff like that plays in providing those sort of reference points for those really abstract ideas? Super important. Uh, so fiction uh, can sometimes forecast what we have in our scientific futures. I think sometimes because scientists can be like uber nerds and oh, they are, that's yeah. what they grow up on, right? Yeah. But the other thing is that it creates this kind of vision that everybody collectively goes, do you know what? We really want this. We want Star Trek. We want Starfleet. Yeah. <laughs> we want to see that happen. And the organizations, the governments go, yeah, actually, that I understand. <laughs> like, I couldn't tell you what this vaccine does, but, you know, I know that my voters are really keen on a hoverboard. So if you could make a hoverboard. <laughs> Please make me a Stargate. Yes. <laughs> Stargate. <laughs> Tara, do you think that... Um, you can create interest in science without hype. Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> she, she says hyped. I'm very hyped. I'm, but I'm always hyped. Like, let's be real. Look, it depends on who you're talking to, right? Because it's always about your audience. And a radio show would know that. People who write know that. So if you're taking... Uh, science into a high school and you're talking to a whole group of students that are super keen on physics, you don't necessarily have to hype it in the same way that if you're talking to a much broader population and you're just trying to get whatever buy-in you can. So if you have 
a group of people who are already pro-science or they're pro-whatever that area you're talking about, you can be super chill, you can be really laid back, play it down a little bit. But when you're talking to people that aren't already engaged, that's when you start seeing those more excitable words. Yeah. If you've got a captive audience, basically. That's right. Yeah, otherwise you have to make it super shiny. Yeah. Yeah. So that you can grab the captive audience. <laughs> take even, them in. even within those like niche audiences, like when you go to a conference on a really specific topic, you need to like out compete everyone and make your topic like the most interesting. Yeah. So you gotta hype it up one way or the other, even though everyone knows what you're talking about. Mm. You kinda need to promote your research and say, Hey, look at look at my study, look how cool it is. Yeah, it's kind of what sociologists call like future bidding. So you're kind of engaging in this war of building expectations and campaigning for your very specific view of what the future of your research looks like. And other people are presenting other views. And the idea is that the best one or the one that sold the best is going to be the one that people kind of narrow in on and go, this is the way we're going to do it. I'm going to put on a song. And then we're going to come back and talk more about this because obviously we're all... We have lots more questions. We're all very hyped. But I actually <laughs> wanted to ask before we... And we should have done this first up. What? How do you define hype? How do I define hype? Yeah. Uh, I have this very long and complicated version of hype, which we will not use today <laughs> because everyone will just slowly fall asleep. It's not at all hyped. But it's really just sensational science. Yeah. Making it, making it sexy and shiny. Yeah. Yeah. Shiny yeah. is good. Shiny, Shiny side. <laughs> You're an reaction here on Zed Digital, and we're in the studio with Tara Robinson, the only science communicator I think we've had in the studio. Mm. Tara, except for you. Oh, and you of course. Like, oh. you're, like, all, you're all talking about science. That's true. <laughs> science communicator guest. Like, I'm definitely well done in the, like, co-announcer seat. Like, it's me now. It is. Yeah. So, Tara. Do you think Australia... So I wanted to go... So obviously NASA is a really good example of, of hype in science, but I wanted to come a little bit closer to home. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Australian science communication, maybe with CSIRO and those kind of places, do it as well as NASA does? Or do you think that there's definitely room for improvement? Bear in mind the answer is no, they don't do it as well. <laughs> well yeah, but, but okay. But what, I mean, if you're using NASA as the... Yeah, yeah well, maybe not yeah. like compared to NASA, but like CSIRO. You know, is it good or bad? What other kind of like science organizations out there and do they do science communication well? Well, I think what I like about Australian science communication is that we have a really nice kind of diversity and there's lots of people doing their kind of homegrown thing in different corners of the of the country. Uh, I do sometimes wish that we'd all just kind of come together and share our best practice because there's a lot that we miss. Like, Perth does amazing things and do you think we ever see it on the east coast we don't and it's sad they're really good is this a product of that very same like like well no so the diversity comes from like that maybe that diversity comes from the lack of a sort of central point where people can sort of meet around though like because there's so many people doing this but they're not really connected in any way they're find their own way of doing it yeah yeah, I mean, we have organizations like the Australian Science Communicators. We have the um, Citizen Science National Conference, which I think happened in the last month or so. I mean, there are kind of coordinated groups, but then there are so many splinter groups that, mm. you know, we just all end up kind of doing our own thing. Whereas when I go to New Zealand, because it's smaller, the population is smaller, they're kind of tighter knit because I guess there's less people to talk to. There's more bias towards it, like, I guess is is it um the uh, pride for your like 
homegrown town mm. yeah type of thing there's a lot more pride in promoting for example brisbane scientists in brisbane than there is yeah, promoting scientists from perth in brisbane there's that's a bit true. of competition mm. yeah i mean sydney is all about the sydney scientists you know? of course yeah it's it's kind of like waving your like your little flagship for hey look at our research sydney scientists are the best see do you think that this might be in some way connected to the re- reduction of funding in general for science then because people are feeling a bit more they need like they need to compete for all this this money that is rapidly dwindling uh in the in the industry that's a that's a very sad view of the world isn't it <laughs> i don't always necessarily agree with that i think that there's money in other places but you have to you know you got to find it um, and it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, we've just passed through grant, write, grant writing season now, and I haven't seen some of our researchers for a good month. They just mm. emerge afterwards, kind of shaking off the doldrums. <laughs> like a, like a butterfly yeah. out of their cocoon. You That's know. right. Yeah. Except, you know, a little bit more dehydrated because they've just <laughs> been drinking coffee. <laughs> yeah, coffee. That's what, they say. That's what they tell you. <laughs> Papa Nodos in the... Yeah. Uh, wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> You find empty wrappers strewn <laughs> everywhere. There's V cans. Mm. Yeah, this is a sad, sad view of is there enough life? hype when it comes to the realities of, say, academia when it comes to grant writing? I I don't think we talk about it enough, probably, um, because we tend to focus more on like the output of research rather than the reality Process. of research life. Mm. Yeah, um, I do enjoy things like um, I think it's called academic chatter on twitter and like people just being like oh hashtag phd life ended up doing this this weekend yeah i'll have a life in six years <laughs> yep don't I'm lie to guilty. yourself there's a couple yeah. of those actually really good kind of twitter pages one two of them that i can think of off the top of my head is a lego phd graduate so good which is which is really good and there's another yeah. one where it's like barbara the barbie doll who um is also a phd student and so she, they yeah and she is so wholesome by the way <laughs> like i would happily just and so she you know it'll be like oh barbara's had a hard day at the p in, in her phd lab so she's decided that she's gonna have you know like a bath with uh, and like listen to so and so and i'm like oh my heart like this is so good and she's it's just yeah so go and i mean that's but that's psychom in a different way though obviously that's psychom to scientists yeah. It's mm. like, it's just to like help scientists get through the day or like, yeah. Yeah. But, but there's I, very little, sorry, Izzy. No, okay, go, go. Um, there's very little like um, light or there's nothing that really sheds light on what the realities are of that. Like, yes, you can promote all the. <laughs> it's called natural reaction. I'll have you know. <laughs> Beyond natural reaction. And we still include hype in the show because we have to. Yeah. Um, that's just the nature of science communication. But there's very little that actually highlights the fact that researchers spend a good significant portion of their time writing to get money um, and then do very little research. That goes all to all the students in that. Yeah. Um, I also think like not understanding the, the sort of everyday trials and tribulations of being a research scientist, it we've kind of put scientists in the broader public discourse on like a weird pedestal where it, they're not... You need they, it's a lack of humanization. They don't seem human. Like when you see scientists in media and that kind of thing, and that's a lot of people's only exposure to scientists is in media. They don't. They're not humans. They're these either icons or workhorses or archetypes. I mean, have or you they seen have Alan yeah. Duffy's cheekbones. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's so true that man just has cheekbones for days. But that's not a very accessible vision for people who 
might want to get more involved or learn more about things like that sort of even like the positive iconography is like it's not you can't like you know you can't talk to a marble statue they need to be a human being that has troubles and obstacles that you can actually relate to otherwise again they're not human to you it's not like they're not there though like i mean they're not i don't is it the public's is it you know news organizations job to show these people off in the light that they, oh, no. they want to be shown off? Or is it, you know, uh, an idea of someone going to Twitter and following a whole bunch of scientists who do talk about PhD life and do talk about, you know, the trials and tribulations of being a researcher? Because that's a really easy way of finding out what it's like to be a researcher, but you're going to have to do the work to get there, I suppose. Yeah. I think the other question is, are, is the general public interested in actually knowing what happens in scientists' everyday lives, or do they just want to know the outcomes well, I mean, we don't ask about the people in the tax office. Like, what's your daily life like? It's just like, oh, no, it's tax time again. <laughs> Actually, no, I've met a couple of people from the tax office. They're really pretty interesting people, They're mostly. Pretty, yeah, switched on. I quite. I would actually recommend talking to tax people. They have some, <laughs> I, I want to stand up for these guys here. They do an important job, and they get nothing but hell from, from the public, right? They don't decide your taxes. That's the government's job. Sorry. Defending my tax office friends. Is he just promoting (laughs) the tax office? No, just my tax office friends. They deserve some defense every now and then. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they do. They do some good work. On this topic of like hype again, um, when you see people getting burned by hype, so to speak, where their expectations are built up, built up, built up, and then they're not met, do you see people turning away, or do they, or do people continually fall for the same tricks? Uh, so in terms of like the consumer of the hype? Yeah, so like the indi- on the individual level, do people like learn from hype hurting them or do they, you know, fall off the wagon again and again? Are they never going to trust a diabetes study again? Yeah. So uh, it's kind of interesting if you look at stem cell research, specifically in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, kind of in the the 90s, maybe early 2000s as well, there were a lot of promises around the field in terms of delivering treatments at a pretty unrealistic time frame. Um, And there were some connections with that to um, stem cell tourism, where we saw a lot of people going overseas looking for treatments that aren't fully proven, spending so much money because that that hope that they'd been granted was too kind of precious to let go because they didn't have any other options. So what the stem cell community in Australia is trying to do now is go, well, how do we moderate this without taking away the hope that people need? Because we need them to still continue in like patient focus groups. We need to be able to talk to them about their conditions so that we can try and find ways to treat them eventually. Uh, But to do that, you have to give them a certain level of, you know, it could happen. And mm. it's an awful kind of balancing act that they have to do. Yeah. Oh, so so do you find people turning away though? I don't know if people take the hype literally a lot of the time. It really depends on which kind of study you're looking at. If you're looking at quantum physics, it's not very personal. It's like, oh no, I don't have my computer now. You know, but medicine, cancer studies, things like that. Uh, we've had students that get calls to the lab and go, hey, we saw that you did a study on MRI and making that better for identifying cancers. Can I use that now? And you go, no, 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 you can't. Oh, oh so the, the, there's a degree of that self-selection yes. going on here again. Yeah. And that I did, that makes sense. Like you said, if something's more personal to you, it's mm-hmm. clearly going to be much more impactful on you and your decisions. Hmm. 
So I have, speaking of that question that we had before about like daily life of scientists, I wanted to know a bit about what the daily life is of Tara. Daily life of Tara, well, you get up and you check Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of Twitter in the daily life. Uh, Yeah, it's a bit of study before work and then you go into work and it's a press release and website updates and all sorts of fun things like that. Lots of kind of the the daily grind of communications work, which I think is quite fun, but other people go, oh, really? (laughs) Another press release? Ugh. Yeah. (laughs) At the moment, I'm writing our annual report, favorite time of year. Oh, yeah, no. No, thank you. (laughs) So what do you think that scientists can do? you, You do PR, you do that kind of thing with scientists. If you're a scientist that maybe hasn't got that great experience with with um science communication that kind of thing are there easy things that a scientist can do to try and get more out there to be more in the public eye create a channel that you can own so if it's twitter or it's instagram or something that works for your research if it's visual instagram is fantastic otherwise not so much Mm. (laughs) um that's something that you can entirely craft the message hone the message you can put it out there you can choose to take it down if you want to write blog posts you can do that kind of on the side and then maybe slowly branch out into things where you have less control but at least on that initial kind of path forward you can say this is my message and i'm sticking to it (laughs) On this sort of thing, do you, how important is it, is it, do you think, that scientists do this? They start making this effort to have to bridge that gap that we're talking about between sort of scientists in media and scientists in real life? Well, I think there's a lot of appetite for it. And scientists are in a kind of privileged position in the sense that people want to hear about what the daily life is like. Like, oh, you don't wear a lab coat because you're a physicist. You tell me what you would wear instead. Oh, cool. Star earrings. You know, where can I get those? (laughs) Like make it personal and, you know, accessible for people. And if you happen to get like a side benefit where your paper gets more reads or you know, you get a little bit more attention at the next conference. I mean, that can only be a good thing. I think it's also interesting. We were talking about the, in Australia, the science communication is very diversified, but very sort of atomized and splintered around. Uh, is that also a bit of a product of the online media and stuff and how we do it in that one of the biggest, like we're talking about hype and how that's about expectation management. And one of the most important coin of the realm, if you want to think of it that way, is authenticity in media these days. So few things have... So few outlets have authenticity to people that individuals now have. Is this sort of feeding into that too, part of that being your own, having your own channel, having your own space? Oh, yeah. And I don't think someone's real and they're not, you know, on some kind of social media. They're, they're <laughs> obviously <laughs> a butt. They're a purely <laughs> hypothetical human being. If they're not on yeah, social absolutely. Media, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't stalk you. <laughs> I don't know if you're real. <laughs> um, so finishing up, last question. What? How important do you think science communication and hype in science communication is to science? I think that if you want to get funding for your research, if you want people to listen to you know your different stories of what it's like to be in the lab and maybe even create a culture change, I think that engaging and communicating about your research and maybe using a little bit of like sensational language can be really helpful. Um, and I'd certainly encourage it. But then that's my bias. <laughs> <laughs> Tara, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a thank pleasure. You. New Natural Reaction here on Z Digital. Izzy. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Regale we're, me. We're talking about the uh, 
the impacts of the 2015 Reddit ban. Uh, uh, this is a new paper. This is not that new, actually. It's a little bit older, but I find it fascinating. So we're talking about it today. So people who don't know, A, what is Reddit? B, what was the Reddit ban? Okay. First of things first, we talk about what Reddit is. Uh, if you've never used Reddit before, it's easy to think of it as like a forum for forums. If you haven't used Reddit before, don't start. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a forum for forums. So it's like one big forum with over 1 million user-made sub-forums, and those are called subreddits. Uh, and they can range from literally, literally anything, anything so and everything. It starts off fairly generic if you first come on there. If you don't have an account, uh, it's just got the, some default stuff. So that's things like GIFs, videos, uh, memes. sports, memes, a uh, bit of news. And then if you make an account, you can start to subscribe and unsubscribe from different things. And that way you can tailor what comes up. And at, after a certain point, it basically becomes kind of like a continually refreshing newspaper of all the stuff that is coming from your favorite communities. You know what? Newspaper is the wrong word. Newspaper is well, you know, analyzed and there's actually someone who goes through and works out what, what stuff is there. It's all just an it's algorithm. Uh, <laughs> I think that really depends on what newspaper you're reading. Uh, I've read some pretty trash tier news. I still read some pretty trash tier news. <laughs> and I've seen some pretty trash Reddit feeds. Yes, so. exactly. That's what I'm saying. Um, but like, yeah, because it has a voting system, so you, users can vote things up or down. And so, what appears when you first click in, if you don't try, if you're not trying to tailor it to like new posts or hot posts or whatever, it will come up with. There's an algorithm that assesses all the up and down votes and presents the things that it thinks are the most popular or the most applicable. Trendings. Trendings, basically, yeah. And so that way it gives you a continually rolling over feed of content from all the little communities that you love. And some of those communities are fantastic. Uh, widely upheld ones things like ask historians where you just ask a form of history people that are really like a actual academics people with phds and things that have sources and and well thought out opinions but then you've also got you know trash or, or even just like <laughs> just your favorite gaming subreddit like yeah. every game has their own subreddit where you can go to and talk to other people in your community about you know total war okay. or stardew valley or whatever it is okay the way i like to describe like the, the the true variety of this like it goes all the way down to like incredibly niche sciences like there's entire subreddits for, like critical theory as a strain of uh, so social science but it goes all the way to things that are just completely devoid of use like a whole subreddit dedicated to birds with arms pictures of birds <laughs> with arms photoshopped on them I love that yeah so it's basically like the various symptoms of the human endeavor uh, but again it's not all kittens DIY skills in photoshop it's ha we're talking about literally everything about the human endeavor so that includes a lot of hate communities uh, these also range from things like straight up, you know, your run-of-the-mill racism to your more advanced rape advocates. Uh, which, yeah, it yeah. gets nasty. I'm not going to shout out any of the particular subreddits because I, they they don't deserve the, the hype. Just know that it's pretty terrible. Uh, so in 2015, some of these sub uh, some of these uh, hate communities were getting quite large and causing quite a number of problems. But most importantly for Reddit, they started to attract attention from outside the you know the in the net sphere the uh the wider media was actually starting to pay attention to the fact that there were some pretty terrible people lurking there and some of these people were involved not just online but doing things cr criminal acts in real life and inciting people to continue them so a lot of them were banned in one big fell swoop in 2015 and it caused a lot of backlash and some talk but it leaves the question open did it work because a lot of the time the conventional internet wisdom is, oh, banning things doesn't work on the internet. It just 
just move platforms. Or maybe not even move platforms. You know, people will just continually do it anyway as a to spite you for doing this. And like the it's often cited as a form of like the Streisand effect where Barbara Streisand t- tried to get a picture of herself taken down the internet and everyone went, Oh, this is something fun we can do now and spread and share that all through all through the world. Poor uh, Barbara. Poor Barbara. Yeah, poor Barbara. But it turns out from an academic study of this uh, of the actual efficacy of the Reddit 2015 ban that it could, this, maybe censoring particular images doesn't work, but banning communities might. Uh, so what these researchers did, and uh, they were mostly from the University of Georgia, uh, with a couple of people from the Georgia Institute of Technology. So Georgia Institute of Technology, uh, Emory University, and the University of Michigan. Uh, papers published in the program in Applied and Computational Mathematics, uh, Human Interaction sort of department. Uh, why, like, so what they first did is they grabbed, a, they took samples of users from different subreddits, some of the norm, some normal non-hate communities just to get like a baseline of what you're looking at, and then some of these from the hate communities, and then they went backwards in time from like tw- prior to 2015 and grabbed uh, posts and things like that that were removed because of hate speech in order to sort of build a lexicon of natural hate language on the subreddits and then measuring how the use of that lexicon differed before and after the ban and where it changed. And they found quite a few things. So one thing that they did find is that a bunch of these accounts did just straight up delete themselves. Uh, so that is something there. Uh, the other thing they found is when they found the accounts that migrated, so to speak, to other communities, that their level of hate speech like, didn't change. Like, so they dropped. Their hate speech dropped in those other communities and the level of hate speech in those communities themselves remained unchanged. So what this is sort of showing is the idea that you'll spread the problem somewhere else and it just sort of atomizes it rather than gets rid of it doesn't seem to hold true in in Reddit's case, at least. Uh, Sort of banning the community actually did have a noticeable impact on the level of hate speech on the site. It's important to note, obviously, in this kind of case that like the people didn't the people might not have changed, right? The the people have still probably got these ridiculous views, but they don't have a platform anymore to agree with other people or, you know, like... To, to make their hate speech. Yeah, yeah, to kind of get to the point where you're collaborating with this hate speech and making it worse and all that kind of stuff, which is interesting. Actually, this probably should take this moment here, here to sort of delineate a little bit, a few things about hate speech and free speech. Uh, hate speech itself is not necessarily so much... like. Hate speech is not really illegal in most places. It depends where you are around the world and various other things. But uh, and what is what can be made is more controlled and more illegal is how you are using that that speech. For instance, a, a academic discussion of the Confederacy or uh, the Stolen Generation, and including and up to including the slurs that were used and things like that. That's a very different context to be talking about this sort of like strictly speaking hate speech than it is to be actively making communities to try and promote these views and spread them. Because one of those things is, is like studying them, and the other one is trying to cause get people to cause harm to another community. Uh, the internet is so often held up like a thing for a radical free speech, but it also is important to remember that websites aren't governments or anything. Like They're private companies that run a thing. They don't owe anybody a platform. They can control what they want said on the site like facebook doesn't allow and uh, doesn't allow nudity uh that is also in bound up in this idea of free speech and hate speech although it does be said that there is a difference between lewdness and hate 
those aren't the same. I don't want to equivocate them. But yeah, yeah, no, but just we know what you mean. There. Yeah, there are showing that there are limitations to speech. Yeah, honestly, if Facebook could be um, <laughs> as not okay with nudity, no, with um, hate speech is what it is, nudity, we might be in a better place. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. You don't have to, like, yes, you give, allowing people to say something is different to giving them a platform is basically what we're trying to say here. Like, you, someone has the right to hate you, but they don't have a right to come into your house and talk to you about how much they hate you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, one thing, something to talk about is the limitations of this study. Uh, for instance, some people, like you, people can just make new accounts and, change, and move houses, all that kind of thing. And it's harder to measure what impact those people had because they, you know, they'll disperse and you have to wait for them to come back up and find, her, find them again. So that aspect is harder to study and that may confound the results here. Maybe a big chunk of these people just made new accounts and they continue to do it somewhere that these people couldn't find. Uh, the other thing is it didn't move to new places on Reddit, but it could have migrated to another entire part of the internet entirely. And 4chan. vote. For 4chan. <laughs> also vote, V-O-A-T. They're, they became very big off this banning. Well, they received a, a big influx of, tra- of traffic after this banning, uh, which has basically turned it into just where gross people go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, if you if the majority of your traffic comes from people who really, 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 really want to talk about how there are lesser races than others, the quality of contributor has dropped significantly. Yeah, you, no one wants to go. But I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty crazy, though, isn't it? That you do have to. That the study in itself, it looks like it's done well, but then, like, it it all kind of falls to to the side if you go okay well everyone's gone to this other site and they're all just talking about this stuff on the other side. But this is like an implication that I really want to talk about, which is. Uh, it has to be remembered that a lot of these groups, uh, not all, obviously there is difference between, like there's a lot of difference of opinion here, but in the hardcore, disgusting internet, well, I'm going to call, I'm going to coin the dirtbag net, the dirtbag internet, basically. Cool. There are, like sites like for, uh, was that Stormfront and a few other like, explicitly neo-Nazi sites and things like that, do actively organize and educate their members on how to recruit people who are in vulnerable positions. And they do things like, because they target people with depression. A lot of these people hang around on depression websites and forums. A lot of people hang around. And the other things that they find, mostly young men who they think are in a place where they can get them into their community. Pushing So pushing these communities further into the fringe where less mainstream people, like less people who are in a vulnerable place, will see them is actually... I has some benefit to that. There is some benefit to that. That is uh, beyond just spreading the problem. So yeah, it has some really interesting implications for moderation going forward. The internet's not going anywhere. It's in, it's great that we're having academic studies looking into what is effective and what is it online. Yeah, mm. I, I agree. Just briefly looking at the paper, it is one of the most profane papers I've seen out there. Yes. Just with the language that they've had to use, and it's actually great. Yes. Wow, uh, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, the paper must be really. Oh yeah. Yeah, Ooh. just, uh, yeah, some of the quotes as you scroll up and down the paper, which I won't say on, on, on air. Please don't. Because it requires more than just a language warning, but <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting. But if you're interested in it, again, the paper is You Can't Stay Here, The Efficacy of Reddit's 2015 Ban Examined Through Hate Speech. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital and Nadia. Please tell me about these adorable spiders. Ooh, is it my turn? Sure is. Ah, okay. Well... Um, spiders. They are adorable arachnids that occasionally release pheromones to um, 
do their thing. So, uh, female to, uh, to get frisky, to get frisky, were. yeah, to get frisky. But not all um, spiders release pheromones. And this one study um, that was recently published uh, investigates the actual pheromones when it comes to hunting spiders. Now, when it comes to web building spiders, they often have pheromones and chemical signals uh, in their silk, and that sometimes helps to attract mates. But female hunting spiders actually do not build webs. So these people from, it doesn't list the university, but the study is published in Springs Journal, Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology. And what they did is they looked at um, these female hunting spiders and tried to decide whether they respond to uh, pheromones and cues from chemicals with male hunting spiders. So they actually... The male hunting spiders don't actually release pheromones, but instead what they do is they give a silk-wrapped gift to their potential mate. One silk-wrapped gift. So <laughs> what they do is um, they're wandering spiders, and these people, um, Tuni, did a study on 100 hunting spiders to see what happens when it comes to releasing pheromones. And they looked at the spider's drag lines. So what these drag lines are is even though they don't build webs, they still release a bit of silk. And they think when females release a little bit of silk and it hangs from different areas, those pheromones waft off and try to attract potential male mates. Oh. Um, and then when the male comes around, he often presents food to the female wrapped in silk. So the investigators wanted to know are there pheromones on the silk-wrapped gift? And if so, does that help the chances of the male copulating with the female? And what they found is that even though the females release um, pheromones on their drag lines to help attract males, the silk-wrapped gift doesn't have any pheromones in it themselves. And basically, it points to that the females prefer silk-wrapped food as a gift Ooh. rather than actually any chemical signals. So the males actually take advantage of um, this, like, uh, exploiting the female's interest in food uh, through a gift-giving behavior. So when a male presents a female with this, like, largely silk-wrapped gift, she eats it while they copulate. And some... I didn't realize that was going to... Is that where it went? She, she didn't, like, enjoy it. They had a picnic together and then they copulate just straight into it. <laughs> no, and interestingly, they think that the amount of silk wrapped around this food also contributes to how long the male can actually sit and populate with the female. So she's distracted longer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's great. It's a good way to explore it. I mean, the whole study was on, are there pheromones involved? Yeah. And it doesn't seem like there's any pheromones involved in um, these nuptial gifts. And it's more about the gift themselves and exploiting a female's love for the actual food. I mean, and that's a exploits pretty... the foraging behavior, which honestly I can relate to. Forget. <laughs> <laughs> Man comes with say, like, some yeah. silk wrapped food. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll yes. give you a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Only while I'm eating it, though. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, so males are attracted to these drag lines that females produced. Um, so there are chemical cues when it comes to these particular spiders and these hunting spiders. There aren't many hunting spiders that have this behavior. There's, I think, two species. And the one that the researchers looked at are um, Pesora mirabilis, uh, And basically it was just to see whether the silk that males and female hunting produce, uh, spiders produced is an important part of mating. And not really. 
Yeah. When it comes on the female's end, at least. I mean, it really, yeah, you really can relate, though, can't you? It's like, bring me some nice food. Yeah, it's all good. Like, yeah. Mm. But yeah. Don't need any pheromones for that. <laughs> no, I just, I, I love studies like this because there's just really cool behavioral science when it comes to animals. And again, it is, I, I enjoy studies like this. And there is hype when it comes to animals because they're fun. You can um, what, relatable. What's the exactly. term when you um like make something human? Anthropomorphize. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's it, it's it's so easy to do. Like yeah, and I I do have a little a little soft spot when it comes to spiders. They are really just interesting creatures. I'm like, does anyone here afraid of spiders? I mean, I make my partner move them, but they're okay. Yeah, I, I do the same at a thing. distance. But so one of our um someone who will not be named was um. Is really is I didn't realize they were afraid of spiders, but they were, and they had this big issue with um, leaving the windows open in their garage because they were worried that a spider was going to go in the car. While they, and I've never, I never had that that issue, and now that I, now that's there, I'm like I leave my windows open all the time <laughs> in my garage. Should I be worried? Like, oh, my aunt has a massive thing. She installed like rolling blinds. <laughs> Nobody's actually. Wow died well, from a spider bite. No, no, no. Her whole house just kind of locks down on a night and during the day, nothing's getting in. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. It's like bomb shelter protocol. I it's mean, things down. no spiders. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess if there was going to be a nuclear bomb go off, she'd <laughs> probably be okay. She'd be set. We'll yeah. head to her place. <laughs> yeah, so they actually, it, it's funny when people talk about their fear of spiders, there actually hasn't been a death from a spider bite in Australia since I think the 80s. And... That's crazy. I um, mean, I can't really like. I I say like, oh yeah, I'm so you know like cultured because I und- I don't I'm not scared of spiders, but like I get scared of cockroaches. What? So I mean, they just they they're so fast moving and they can fly, but they don't. It, they do sudden? nothing. It's like sudden. It's movement. Just, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you open the thing. Startling. You're like, oh, I'm just gonna get out this piece of paper towel, and there's a co- cockroach on it. It's scary as hell. I think having beardies for a long time, bearded dragons for a long time, really helped me with this because I I owned bearded dragons as a kid. So I just I fed them cockroaches all the time. So you just they're not gross to me. I just pick them up and crush them. So it's just like, food. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not for me. Hopefully. Like, nom, nom, nom. Don't eat cockroaches, Silk people. <laughs> if it's uh, I will make exception for a well silk wrapped gift. <laughs> <laughs> I think That's everyone. So will. Uh, cockroaches. I actually ran a practical um, for second year students where we looked at the peripheral sensory nerves in cockroach legs. And part of like my job as a tutor was having to dole out these cockroaches into individual tubes. And um, I just did it with my hands. So a giant bucket of cockroaches. And I I don't have a problem with them. They really just, they're okay. There's nothing wrong with cockroaches. But the funniest part was when I was running those practicals, I got super excited because I found this like perfectly white albino looking cockroach and I'm like oh my god so I kept him in my pocket for the entire practice <laughs> um, were they still alive yeah they're yeah. alive um, in a tube we we anesthetized them before we removed the legs um, for the for the practical do you, do you we, gas them or what uh, we put them on ice so they go to mm. sleep and then we chop their heads off and then chop their legs off and then you pin it and then the hairs on the cockroach's leg they are called sensilla. And under each of these sensilla is a single neuron that um, basically can feel vibrations. It's a peripheral neuron. So the students would do recordings of these uh, sensilla just to talk, 
learning about the peripheral sensory neurons because cockroaches can feel vibrations and that's how they do it. Um, the more you know. Yeah, but anyway, so I kept this uh, very white albino cockroach in my pocket and I was very proudly showing all the students. Um, and then by the end of the prac, it had changed color. Oh, really? Aww. And I realized it just went through a molting cycle and it wasn't a real albino cockroach. Aww. It had just been freshly molted. I'm going to put on a song now. Well, before you do, really quickly, the ner- those hairs, the neurons in the hairs, if you hit the hair, does it cause like, the neuron to spark and the leg to move even if it's detached? Is that? Uh, yeah, so what you do is you have three recording electrodes and then with a very small toothpick, you can flick a single hair and then those electrodes are actually recording in a program so you can see the neuronal response to it. Fascinating. So like it's a, it's a form of movement that bypasses the main brain. Oh, like the... Insect brains are a harder thing to talk about. That's a whole other show. Well, it's 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 a neuron. You stimulate it, um, and it still picks it up. Yeah, cool. Your natural reaction here on Z Digital, and we are talking. Final quick story. We've only got a couple minutes left, but I wanted to quickly talk about Amelia Earhart, and we've talked about her before. We've talked about what might have happened to her, but I don't know. I find like this story fascinating. That so, if you don't know the story, Amelia Earhart, um, she tr- was a trans. She was a aviation female aviation expert um well and at the time there was actually quite a few female aviators but um she was one of the most famous ones in part because um she went to circumnavigate the globe she was Um, the first to cross the atlantic Atlantic, yes yeah solo cross yeah yeah she there was basically but actually i think that so that was one of the things she did there was also another one that was earlier that kind of gave her her start, but I think she had, didn't actually fly that one. I think she was, she called, um, there was something about, so she didn't fly it and she felt like her, um, she was getting all this acclaim for it, but she called herself like a potato. She could have just been a bag of potatoes <laughs> and it would have been about the same amount of help. And I was like, oh, it's cute. Um, so she, yeah, one of the reasons is that she was so famous is that she mysteriously disappeared while attempting to circumnavigate the globe with her co-pilot Fred Noonan in 1937. Now, there has been so many different things that have come out saying, you know, we know we know where she is. Um, one of the ones was that she was captured by Japanese forces, and there's this like photo that they they use as like evidence that it was definitely the case, and it's got this like lady in the background, but you can't see her face, you can't see anything. But um, people people really care about knowing where she is. Um, so a lot of people believe that she crashed and died at sea. Um, that's I think the consensus at the moment. Seems um, to be the most like reasonable explanation. Yeah, but this one this one um, guy called so the the researchers are from the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, and that's basically just trying to find Amelia Earhart. But they believe that Earhart's disappearance was on a they actually ended up on an island called Nikamaru. Ruru, Nikamaruru Island. Um, and so they have found a bunch of artifacts that they believe link um, her to either Earhart or Noonan, and that includes like a jacket button, a mirror, aluminium sheets, um, and even anti-freckle cream that some think Earhart might have kept with her. So, I mean, there are some interesting like finds here. You can say that you've, you know, created the evidence or no, like um, you've used the evidence that's there to kind of like boost your causes. You might, you might find that these things are different. Um, but here's, so there's also, they also found a body. And this was back in the 40s. They actually found a bunch of bones. Um, and at the time, they thought that it was a male and likely nothing more than a castaway. And the reason for that is because um, there was actually a number of men that were killed in that particular island in a 1929 wreck. So the island was uninhabited, but there has been a few people on it since. If they found a body, like, is it? did they just find bones? Because I imagine... Yeah. 
um, she did her flight in the 1930s, her body wouldn't have decomposed completely. Yes. Like within that time frame, wouldn't it? You would assume so. And they it was only bones. It was I think it was not the whole body. I think it was just a, a number of them. One of them was definitely her arm bone, mm. um, and a couple of other bones. So it wasn't well. <laughs> that what they found were arm bones. I'm not going to specify that it's definitely hers. Um, but so this particular researcher and his name is um, Richard Jantz has been looking at this and is is pretty sure that this um, that these bones belonged to um, Amelia Earhart but the thing is that these bones were actually lost after they they thought so 1940s they looked at them they said oh well no, this isn't anyone that we care about and they actually got rid of the bones so we don't know where the bones are now um, but in the 1990s they found a case study looking at it and they found yep no this is definitely the case um, and they've been doing it ever since but the thing is we still don't know and there was a bunch of headlines that came out saying yes they're 100% sure that Amelia Earhart was this person and it was found in the bones and we don't have the bones would you say that there was some hype around the situation there was some hype around the situation there was timely <laughs> and I was, I was very upset about the whole thing to be honest um, we're running out of time here so I just wanted to quickly run through what we've done I love all your faces thank you for coming in every week appreciate Aww. it Nadia appreciate Aww. it Izzy Aww, thank you all of our listeners, thank you for listening. You guys are the best. Tara, thank you so much for coming in. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It for really was. Me. Talking about science and hype. One of my favorite topics. It's just it's it's a fun one and I really appreciate it. It's you quite close in. to our heart. Considering <laughs> considering how busy your schedule is, you know. <laughs> really uh, enjoyed having you in.